John's prologue, what you just heard, those first 18 verses, is one of the most majestic moments in the Bible. But it is also a preacher's nightmare. Anything you say about this passage is likely going to mess it up. It's like one of those things where you say it's too good, don't mess with it. It reminds me of one of those great songs done by the most perfect artist. And when someone in a singing competition tries to mimic them, the only thing they can do is go down from the top. And so that in mind, please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts. And I pray that we would be ready to hear you. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen. By the way, those perfect passages like Romans 8 and John 1, even though you likely will only mess them up in preaching about them, are worth preaching about. Because otherwise, we who have heard them many times just move right past them. And if anything, as long as we slow down here and listen to these words, even if I fall from the glory of John 1, if I slow you down to listen to it for a few minutes, it will be worth our time. John's prologue is meant to establish how we read his gospel. It's his introduction. And he self-consciously makes us remember Genesis in the beginning. He frames his gospel as a retelling of the entire creation narrative in light of Jesus. He frames it as a retelling of all of human history in light of Jesus. It is the new creation. And it's remarkable as you read through the gospel how he takes Genesis and retells it through Jesus. So in Genesis, we have at the pinnacle of creation a marriage, a marriage over which God presides, over which God creates both man and woman to bring them together. And what's the first miracle of John? Jesus at a wedding sanctifying it and blessing it by his presence. We see quickly in Genesis the crisis that occurs when there's a woman alone waiting for food and a tempter comes to her to lure her away. And you see a woman alone in John 4 waiting at a well, but it's not the tempter who arrives, it's the Lord Jesus to bring her back. John is very consciously playing with Genesis and retelling it in light of Jesus so that we can see that the whole world is being made new. It's stunning and beautiful and read through that light. It's more than just a retelling of Genesis, though. It's also an encapsulation of the entire gospel in 18 verses. The history of salvation. God creates. The God who creates is unknowable, and yet he is revealed for the one, from, through the one who is God and with God. Revealed by the one who comes in our midst, that through this one we might become the children of God. It's a retelling of the whole gospel, a call to us to become one of those people who through belief become a part of the family of God. That particular theme in the introduction that's introduced with all those who believe become children of God brackets all of John. Because at the end of the gospel he says, I wrote these things that you might believe. And that in believing, you would have life. John's gospel is introduced by these 18 verses. And in them, we see in seed form all of the major themes that he's going to deal with throughout the gospel. 
And I'm not going to try to touch all of them, but I want to pull one out and just hold it before you today so that we can wrestle with it. The theme that he introduces that I want to hold out is this theme of light and darkness. You look at verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Is this theme that I want to hold before you today, the idea that the life of God, the dynamic and unending and overflowing life of God was present in the one who was both with God and also God, filling his own life to overflowing, life, pulsating, changing, transforming. And that life came into the world like a light, shining in the midst of darkness, shining in a way that brought life to others and enlightened others. The idea that there is this one who is both with God and God, full of God's life, shining in our midst. Life that is light. Light that brings life. Light shining in the darkness. That's the theme from this prologue that runs through John's gospel that I want to hold before you. Depending on the translation that you use at home, verse 5 that says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Depending on the translation that you use at home, that verse may not say the light has, the darkness has not overcome it. Many translations say instead, the darkness has not understood it. And both of those translations are actually good translations. John, throughout his gospel, purposely uses words that have two meanings, fully intending both of them. It's hard when you're translating and you've got a word that means two things, and both are intended by the author, and you say, which one do I pick? The word literally means to grasp or to seize. And it can mean to grasp in the sense of to understand, but it can also mean to grasp in the sense of to overpower and to conquer. And John means both. The darkness has not grasped the light. It doesn't get it. It doesn't understand it. But the darkness has also not grasped the light in the sense that it's always failed to overcome it and subdue it and overpower it. We see the height of the darkness seeking to overcome and overpower the light in the crucifixion. As we're told in other gospels, Jesus himself said, this is the hour of darkness. This is as bad as darkness gets. Darkness trying to snuff out the light of the world. And yet consistently throughout John, Jesus' crucifixion is actually called his glorification. The light seeks to overpower, and, I mean the darkness seeks to overpower and conquer the light. And yet what occurs there is anything but. It only lifts it all the higher. The darkness cannot overcome it. But it's actually the other translation of that word, the darkness has not understood it, that I actually want to spend my time on today. I want to focus on that meaning and sort of trace it through John and let it sink deep into our souls. This theme, the idea that the darkness cannot understand the light, is all over the Gospel of John. I'm going to give you just a few examples and I hope that as you hear them, you'll realize that this gospel is richer and deeper than we could imagine. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And you might remember, 
When does Nicodemus come to Jesus? He comes at night. He comes in the dark. It's not an accidental detail. John is doing in the telling of his story, in the choosing of which pieces to tell us, he's doing in literature what he's meaning in theology. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in the darkness. And when Jesus tells him that he has to be reborn by water in the spirit to be able to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus looks at him and says, how can that be? And Jesus looks at him and says, you're the teacher of Israel, but you don't understand this. You don't understand. Those in darkness cannot understand the light. From the very beginning of the gospel, he's playing with this theme and working it out. Unless you worry too much about Nicodemus, by the end of the gospel, he's moved into the light and he's got it. It's not a condemnation of him entirely. But at that moment, he was in darkness. And because he was in darkness, literally, but more importantly, spiritually, he could not understand the light speaking to him. Flash forward one chapter from John 3 to John 4, and we move from Nicodemus to the woman at the well. And when does Jesus meet her? It's not in darkness. It's at high noon. It's the middle of the day when he meets her. And here is this woman who, even though she's so much further from God than Nicodemus ever was, she doesn't have his knowledge of the word of God. She doesn't have his knowledge of the law. Her life is a moral train wreck. She's on man number six. And even though all of those things are wrong with her, she gets it. She's in light, and light shines in her life. Light gives her life. It shines to the depths of her being. In this woman who was so far from God in our estimation, this woman who is in the light becomes the chief evangelist of her town. She understands the light. Again, there's example after example of this imagery being used throughout John of those in darkness versus those in light, and the ones in darkness can't understand Jesus, and those in the light can. But I don't want to take all of our time up just reciting all the examples. I would encourage you to go read through John with the idea of understanding or misunderstanding of light and darkness in your mind, and they'll start to pop out over and over This theme matters to John. The only other one that I want to mention to you is the sort of granddaddy of them all, is John 9, the pinnacle or hinge chapter of this book. It's interesting that all of the gospel writers tell stories of people being born blind and being healed, but in almost every other instance, it's like three or four verses. It's just, and he healed a blind person. But John takes the story in John 9 the story of this man born blind and healed. And instead of just telling it in three or four verses, he spends 41 verses on one miracle. 41 verses on the story of man, a man brought from darkness, from blindness into light. In other words, this miracle is a picture of what it means to move from darkness into light. And that's actually why I want to linger on this as my third example for just a few moments. This man who had lived his life in darkness, this man who had lived his life in blindness, is brought into the light. But before he did, Jesus said something to his disciples. In fact, he said it twice. 
He looked at them and he said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And then a little bit later, he said, I am the light of the world. In other words, when he healed this man, he was trying to illustrate something for them. What the light can do with someone who is ready to receive it. It could take somebody out of blindness into light. I am the light of the world. And then he says, watch. I'll demonstrate it in action. The healing was a demonstration of darkness being encountered by light and the darkness fleeing and a man literally physically being able to see as a picture of what had happened spiritually. After the healing, when the man's confronted by Jesus, we know that this isn't just a literal healing. It's not just a physical healing because after he had been healed, Jesus confronts him and he said, do you believe in the son of man? It's a question of understanding in belief. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man who had formerly been blind said, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you hear his willingness and his readiness? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Light has shown, and everything is different. This man understands. And yet at the end of the story, the Pharisees don't understand. They are still in darkness. They cannot believe because they believe that Jesus is a sinner. At the end of the story, these people who can still physically see are the spiritually blind, while the man who had been physically blind is spiritually full of light and seeing. This miracle is one of the major themes of this gospel told in physical form so we can look at it and examine our own lives by it. It's a hinge in this book, the culmination of this theme, that Jesus is the life of God, life that shines like light in a dark world, light that brings life. And most people are in darkness and can't see it, can't grasp it, don't care. But for those who can see it, that light becomes life that transforms everything. It becomes a well of life within them, bringing them out of the little bits of darkness that remains, bringing life that overflows in all corners of their own life. It's fascinating to me that this message, this idea, it's fascinating to see that the light and therefore the receiving of the light has nothing to do with a person's theological knowledge. I mean, you think of Nicodemus. He's got it all. He's got all the theological knowledge, and it doesn't help him. You think about the woman at the well. She's got none of it. A Samaritan, we would call her heretical at best, heterodox, or heretical at worst, heterodox at best. She's got a misunderstanding of all of the scriptures because of the way the Samaritans read them. She doesn't have Nicodemus's theological knowledge. And yet, that's not a hindrance to her. It's not about how much a person had knowledge. The man who was born blind didn't have the theological knowledge. When he's questioned and questioned by the Pharisees, he keeps saying, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that guy healed me. He doesn't have the depths of theological knowledge. It's not theological knowledge that makes somebody able to receive the light. 
You look at the morality of these people. It isn't an issue of impeccable morality. Again, Nicodemus was at the top. The Pharisees kept the law rigorously, and yet that didn't help him understand the light. The woman at the well, she's at the bottom. She's way away from the kingdom of God in terms of her morality, but that didn't prevent her from understanding the light. It's actually almost humorous to ask the question, can sinners receive the light, or do you have to be righteous first? Because when you look at John 9, the man born blind, there's this continual debate throughout the chapter of, is this guy a sinner? How bad of a sinner is he? In fact, the story opens with the disciples looking at him and going, Jesus, how bad of a sinner did this guy have to be to be born blind? Or maybe his parents were really bad sinners. Maybe everybody wants to finger his sin. Later, after the miracle, the Pharisees keep talking about his sin. You were still in your sins, they say to the man. Everybody's accusing him of being a sinner throughout the passage. And yet, whether or not they're right doesn't matter. The light has shone on this man and brought him out of darkness. In other words, the people who can receive the light aren't necessarily those with a lot of theological knowledge, and they aren't those with impeccable moral lives. Being able to receive the light is something else. And it's that question that I wrestled with this week. Why are some able to receive it? Why do some see and understand and are therefore transformed? And why are some driven away from it, darkness that wants nothing to do with it? There's actually a clue at the end of John 9, an answer to that question. Why can some receive it and not others? At the end of the story, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask, and it's probably a sarcastic question, they ask him, are we also blind? Are you telling us we can't see? And Jesus looks at them and he actually says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. There's a clue to this question, why can some receive the light and not others, in that statement. Jesus, in effect, is saying to them, your problem is that you claim to be able to see. If you could only acknowledge your blindness, this would be dealt with. The answer that begins to come out of Jesus' statement to them is simple. Whether or not a person can receive the light is not about whether or not they are the best theologian in the group. And it's not about whether they've lived a perfect life. Whether a person can receive the light is really, in a very simple sense, about humility and honesty. It's about humility and honesty. This, by the way, is where this passage should begin to cut home to each of us. Jesus is saying that those who claim to have understanding, who think that they have no need, those are the ones in the dark who will not see the light. And yet he's also saying that those who come to him and say, Lord, I can't see anything unless you open my eyes. Those are the ones who actually see it. This is why Nicodemus, at first, was unable to see, because he trusted in his own understanding of things. 
And this is why the woman, at the woman at the well had no barriers to seeing, because she knew herself well enough to know that she shouldn't trust herself in anything. The people who come to him in honesty and humility and say, Lord, I can't see unless you open my eyes. Those people are graced with his light and therefore his light. Whether or not we see has a whole lot more to do with confession than it has to do with impeccable morality, in other words. Whether or not we see has a whole lot more to do with humility than it does to do with theological knowledge, in other words. Darkness or blindness is about how we respond to our sin, not whether or not we have it. At the end of the day, every single one of us has it. And whether we remain in darkness or come into the light is about how we respond to the fact that we have sin. And that verse in John 9, verse 41, Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees, conflates blindness and guilt. He conflates light and forgiveness. He's making it clear that this imagery of light and dark is about sin, but it's not about whether you've sinned. It's about what you do when you're confronted with it. To be in the dark is to deny it, to refuse to acknowledge it, to justify oneself, to accuse another, to point the finger, to protect oneself, to claim that you are sufficient in and of yourself. Being in the light, being forgiven, is simply another way of describing acknowledging it. Owning it, actually putting down the charade and saying, indeed, this is true about me. Those who refuse to acknowledge it, those who hide it, those who cover it up, those who justify themselves remain in the darkness and they cannot see or understand Jesus and therefore they cannot receive his light. But those like the woman at the well who don't deny it, who own it, who say, indeed, what you say is true. That's what she said to Jesus. You told me everything about myself. Because of that humility and honesty, she's able to receive the light. And in fact, when she goes back to her own town, it's actually that testimony that becomes her way of evangelism. She says to the people of the town, Come meet the man who told me everything about myself. Every rotten little detail, he knew it all. She is so far away from hiding or covering up or justifying. And John, there's a variety of words that are used to describe what it means to come to Jesus with this sort of posture. It coming to him is described as acts of faith. Coming to him is described as acts of obedience. There's a variety of words, and in fact, Jesus in multiple places says that he's the light, that he comes to bring light, and he says things like, so that people would believe, and so that they would follow me. This idea of receiving, or believing, or obeying, or following, all different ways that Jesus describes in John what it means to receive the light, to be transformed by it. But in order to take those steps of following or believing or receiving, in order to move in that direction, we must actually begin with actually owning our own sin. Owning it. 
In John, the message is pretty clear. You can't step towards the light while covering up the darkness inside of you. Trying to hide the darkness within us, and yet at the same time saying, I want to move in the light, is a contradictory position. To to take our sin and to explain it away. To say it was so-and-so's fault, or I deserve this. To take our sin to justify it. To take our sin to ignore it, just to say, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to look at it. To take our sin and to pretend like it doesn't exist. All these ways that we deal with the darkness within us, ways that I deal with the darkness within me, ways that each of us has. All of those ways are ways of preventing ourselves from stepping into the light. We have to become like the woman at the well, who when confronted by something, didn't try to hide it, didn't point the finger, didn't cover it up. She didn't justify herself. She didn't say, Jesus, if you had known what those five men that I lived with first were like, you would have run too. Those men were, she did not move in the direction that we move so easily. It's so-and-so's fault. She just said, he told me everything that was true about me. He told the truth. She owned her own sin. This is the basic first step of being open to the light, receiving the light that becomes life in us, this basic step of humility and honesty. Most of us know that move because we've made it before. But we're not talking here about a once upon a time when I was 12 years old at summer camp, I made that move. This movement is an everyday movement. Every day, where we own who we actually are before the Lord Jesus, where we stop justifying, stop pointing the finger, stop ignoring, stop blaming, where we own who we actually are before Jesus, a posture that continues, not a -a once-in-a-lifetime decision. I thought a lot this week of how much we need the life of Jesus. I thought a lot about myself this week about how much I need the life of Jesus. How many places there are sort of still yet to experience the fullness of his life flowing through me. How many places where I want to see him work and transform me. But then as I thought a lot about this week, my need for that, I also thought a lot about the places where I block the life of Jesus by refusing to own my sin. This is the movement that we need to learn to make It's hard to own the junk that's wrong with us. We cover it up because of shame. We cover it up because of fear. We don't want people to see it because we think they might never love us again if they did. We cover it up because of pride. We have so many reasons that we cover it up. And yet Jesus is saying to us, come into my life. Come into my light. Let go of the pretense. He's not fooled. To be honest, the people who live with us are rarely fooled either. We think that we're hiding it, and yet the thing is plain as day for anybody who gets close enough to know us. Jesus is saying, I came into the world that you wouldn't remain in the darkness. Just own that and step into the light 
Like I said, it's not a one-time thing. Being in the light of Jesus is an everyday decision. We need his light because we need his life every single day. It's no good for us to refuse to acknowledge our brokenness, our need, our sin. Regardless of what's motivating us, it does no good to hide that. All that we do when we hide it is block ourselves from the life and the light of Christ. My prayer for all of us, for myself, for my family, for this church, is that we would be people who actually acknowledge our blindness and our sin. There are so many times where the church has come off as a place where only perfect people need apply. And yet the ridiculous thing is that none of us are that. If we would be people who stop hiding and running from the conviction of our sin, but instead own it before Jesus, we would see his life flourish in us because we would be able to receive his light. We, in those moments, will discover not one who condemns us, but one instead who is willing to forgive. I want to close with one other character in the Gospel of John who is brought into the light. And it is as shameful of a bringing into the light as you can imagine. A group of men have a woman by the robe and the hair dragging her across the ground, and they throw her in the front of Jesus at his feet. And they say, we caught her in adultery in the very act. You can imagine her shame. Everything brought out into the light. And yet Jesus looks at this woman who's now in the light and says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Just get up. Go and sin no more. We discover when we come into the light, one who does not condemn. We discover not just one, though, who does not condemn, We discover one who gives the strength to live a new and totally different sort of life. This is the Lord we serve. And so my prayer for all of us is that we would step into his light. Amen.